Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Whether you're bullish on the North American EV car boom or not, there are exciting things happening on two wheels in Europe and Asia. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlene Haddad and I speak with Swin Chatswan, founder and CEO of Zap. Zap has developed a line of electric motorcycles manufactured in Thailand that include some unique features, like being able to plug in anywhere. To help fuel Zap's drive into European and Asian markets, it announced a $573 million combination with CIAG Capital Partners 2 in November. CIAG 2 co-CEO Gavin Cuneo also joins to discuss some of the key points of differentiation for Zap in the market and why this differs from some of the first wave EV SPAC deals we saw earlier in the cycle. Take a listen. So a few years back, EVs and SPACs were two acronyms that seemed inextricably bound together, but we saw that wave of four-wheeled EV deals in SPAC land, and now we've had several deals with uh, two-wheeled EV companies. And so just to start, Swin, can you explain a bit about how and why those two markets are different? Actually, in the U.S., we understand four wheels quite well, and we're very focused on replacing the existing ICE fleet um, with EV cars. But actually, the world itself has a very large population of two-wheel vehicles. There are currently 60 million two-wheel vehicles sold every year worldwide. And that number is, unlike cars, actually expected to grow. And subject to which um, source you use, uh, that number is expected to double between five and seven years from now. That's really interesting. And for you, Gavin, you were on the CIAG's team's earlier SPAC deal. It did involve a four-wheeled EVs. I mean, as you continue to look at the market, what were some of the changes that you saw that led you to look on the two-wheeled side? First of all, I think it's the market size is number one, as Swin mentioned. These are huge markets. Most North American consumers don't understand. We know what two-wheelers are. We see them around. But when you're in, in Europe and in Asia, which are the target markets uh, for Zap, they're massive, uh, obviously ubiquitous vehicles, especially in urban environments. We also saw this, this segment as less competitive as the four-wheelers. There's a ton of pure play electric four-wheelers that, that are out there, many publicly, many through SPAC transactions, far fewer uh, in the two-wheel space. So that w- was appealing to us. There's a lot of other things about the two-wheel space, and especially about Zap's business, which we can get into, but it's especially on the manufacturing side, it's a much simpler process. And that, that's very Zap specific, but I, th- I think you could generalize that that building a two-wheeler is a much simpler process. And um, Zap has really figured out how to get into startup production, which is very appealing to us because as you guys know, a lot of the four-wheel companies have had a lot of difficulty. It's taken more time, it's taken more money, but not in the case of Zap. So just getting more into your powered two-wheeler models, where exactly do they fit in the market in terms of price and performance? Globally, two-wheelers range quite diversely from literally $1,000 all the way up to $30,000 for road legal vehicles. So just to be clear, we don't mean um, what Europeans call trottinets, which in the US we would call scooters which is like the products that Lime and Bird rent out. But we would mean road legal vehicles. The smaller versions would be more recognizable in the US, such as from a brand like Vespa, and all the way to a very large top of the range Harley Davidson. So that's the market that we're in, road legal vehicles. Now, in Europe, the standard product ranges between 6,000 and 13 to $14,000. And we 
our product ranges between seven and $9,000. So as you can see, we're right in that sweet spot. In Asia, where the market is significantly bigger, there are two categories of products. Shall we say standard products and premium products? And standard products being, as I mentioned, $1,000 up to about $3,000. The premium product then goes from $4,000 again to about $30,000. And again, we're at the low end of that premium product range. But for us, we're providing top of the range specifications that come from a motorcycle, but actually in a scooter format, i.e. in a Vespa type format. And this is what's new about Zap. And this has been made possible by electrification and uh, the compactness of the electrified platform over the gasoline platform. Got it. And so your materials note some efficiencies that you found on the production side with just 165 components required for assembly. Why does that matter and how does it compare to the competition? Great. Um, so I'm going to double back to what Nick said earlier about four wheels and two wheels. In two wheels, weight is a real issue. And what we saw with electrification is an opportunity to completely rethink from ground zero how to actually build a motorcycle um, using electrification. And what we believe we've achieved is what uh, I have coined Gen 2 sustainability. So what we haven't done is bolted an electric motor and some batteries to an existing form factor. I've actually gone back to ground zero and completely redesigned how a motorcycle looks, uh, how it weighs and how it's manufactured. And as a result of that, we have a low component architecture, uh, a very low center of gravity and a very lightweight vehicle. And as you know, with electric vehicles, the heavier the vehicle, the more batteries, the more batteries, the heavier the vehicle. And you're in this kind of like vicious circle. And what I set out to achieve from the beginning was a virtuous circle where you make the vehicle lighter, then the batteries get smaller, then the vehicle gets lighter, the batteries get smaller. So I hope we've achieved that. There are a number of accolades which we've given ourselves, one of which is very important for Gen 2 sustainability. Great. And as we've touched upon, geography seems to be a much more important detail when talking about the kind of the two-wheeler product market fit than when it comes to the you know, four-wheeler uh, EVs. And so you mentioned Europe and Asia, but a little more specifically, what are some of the markets you're targeting first? And what are some of the kind of ones you might be avoiding in terms of the first wave? For investors who might be listening, uh, one of the things to point out is that the global two-wheel market is as big as the US luxury car market that Lucid wants to inhabit and as big as the US pickup truck market that Rivian wants to inhabit. So that's kind of what we're talking about, just to lay the foundations. When we talk about Europe, we're really talking about the EU. And within the EU, uh, the biggest markets would be Germany, France, Spain, and Italy. And what is interesting about Europe is that there are currently 35 million motorcycles in the EU. And as you've seen compared to the US, um, there's an accelerated legislature looking to um, terminate the use of um, ice or gasoline motorcycles and cars, uh, which could come into full effect in its entirety by say 2035, depends who you believe. But you can see that in Paris, and a couple of other cities, gasoline bikes and cars, which are a bit older, have already been banned. But that pales into unit insignificance when you look at Asia. And the markets we're targeting are India and a group of countries uh, that are called ASEAN, which is like the trading block equivalent of the EU, which consists of countries like Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines. And between those two countries, 
uh, between that group of countries and India, they're buying about 30 million, three zero million motorcycles a year. It, it's absolutely a huge market. But uh, I will say that in the price segment we're operating in, out of that 30 million, um, about 3 million are in the luxury space, which would put it for now slightly bigger than Europe. But if we see an accelerated rotation in Europe to EV two wheels, uh, the number of sales at the moment is about 2 million units a year. It could jump to about 5 million units a year over the next 10 years. As we see more purchasing power in Asia, i.e. being South Asia and Southeast Asia um, or ASEAN, um, we could again see an increase in sales of um, premium vehicles go from 3 million to possibly 6 million. So we're, we're really in a good place to take advantage of both of those markets um, in Europe because of legislation tailwind, in Asia because of increasing purchasing power. So um, yeah, we really like our space. Great. And, and we've mentioned some of the other companies that have been targeted by SPACs in the last couple of years, and that you know, not only are they somewhat different models generally than what you're uh, producing, but also those are companies that have separate business lines aside from making and selling the vehicles themselves. Sometimes that's their main business in terms of renting them out. Um, and so does Zap plan on getting into any of that in terms of ride sharing or building out charging networks to, to be monetized? Uh, one of the things that Gavin and the CIG team really liked about us is that um, we're called infrastructure free. So we don't need charging infrastructure um, like the Power by Gogoro network or the swappable battery motorcycle consortium or cars where you need to find somewhere on the curb to plug it in. Our batteries only weigh about 12 pounds each. Um, they have the same footprint as a MacBook Pro, the thickness of about three MacBook Pros. Um, our motto for them is take them anywhere, charge them everywhere. And the reality is that with batteries that light, you can charge them in Starbucks, at home, in the office, and therefore you are infrastructure free. Being infrastructure free means we can sell or as many as we can make or make as many as we can sell. Um, we're not inhibited by our sales in sales growth by the need to roll out a charging infrastructure. So our takeoff rate is going to be significantly faster, we hope, than Tesla's was at the beginning. That's a really important part of that. Great. And so we usually ask about how companies are dealing with supply chain issues, but Zap also has an interesting value chain model of its own. How did you come to decide to go with the dropship direct-to-consumer model? And how much of that was in response to some of the macro forces out there? So in terms of supply chain, absolutely. Um, you know, having significantly lower components really eases our pain. And um, compared to cars, bikes generally have less electronics. And in our case, we've really consolidated that as well. Um, so uh, we're fairly safeguarded there, but you know, I can't guarantee anything, clearly, even with this uh, uh, low component architecture. In terms of delivery chain, I've been a great enthusiast of cars and um, motorcycles all my life. And one of the real pains of vehicle purchase experience and ownership experience is the dealership. They've taken stock on wholesale. They're under pressure to move that stock. Uh, and when you go into a store, it's, it's really a, a kind of a horrible experience. So what we've decided to do is to say, well, look, well, how can we make the, that experience better? The modern human now kind of buys everything online. So uh, we make that as painless as possible. And uh, uh, I believe that we are still the only full stack e-commerce motorcycle business in the world. 
So you do your you do your transaction online, and then um, a van, like an Amazon van, uh, then delivers the bike to your home. So there's no need to go to a store, brace yourself for a hard sell experience. You do things in the comfort of your own home. The vehicles then delivered to your home, and then we use the we come to you model after we've done the drop ship direct to customer, and um, the Zapper van then comes back to the customer's um, home to uh, do a safety inspection once a year. Of course, our bikes are dry and they, they don't need servicing per se. Uh, the Zappers are trained by us. They may be independent contractors, but ultimately they're fully trained technicians who understand our product, our system, our uh, after-sales system, our parts inventory um, clearly. And then it does, what that does mean then is that we can do our marketing almost entirely on an above the line basis, get people familiar with the brand, get people familiar with our values and becoming a part of our family. And then the network then goes into the service element. So there isn't a sales element at all. So there's no below the line. So you jump straight from above the line marketing to face-to-face contact at the after sales level. Our product is brand new, but this approach, which we didn't invent, it's, it's familiar in white goods, like a company like Nespresso would do the same thing, but it's brand new for motorcycles. Right. And I wanted to get into CIG's process a bit here too, in that, you know, again, we we touched upon CIG had an earlier spec that did its combination with Arrival, which also had some novel concepts in terms of its business model with micro factories, and it had a concentration on fleets and, and some other particular aspects of it that kind of stood out against the, the rest of the EV space. And I'm just interested in Gavin, just, you know, what were some of the learning experiences you took away from that deal that played into how you looked at Zap and the market and and how everything was progressing? Yeah, Nick, I think our experience with Arrival, it really dovetails to what I was saying earlier. Arrival was a company that that had a very novel approach to, or is a company that has a very novel approach to manufacturing through their microfactory system. Um, and it's also a company that's had delays in getting the manufacturing up and running as a result, and it's cost more than they thought. So as we looked across the EV space, We've spent a lot of time in the space over the past few years with, with many different businesses. And we came across Zap and, and met Swin and learned of his plan. Um, what was really appealing to us was the fact that he had this fantastic manufacturing partnership set up with Summit. We immediately traveled to Thailand. We saw um, the bikes coming off of the assembly line in Thailand um, and knew immediately this company was SOP ready. So what Swin and the team, and we have a very experienced management team here, Swin, Jeremy, David, Simon, and the others, have put together a plan where where everything is in place before they've taken their first order. So they know that they can deliver the bikes immediately. This isn't something where they've gone out, built a prototype and said, let's go see what the demand is. And then if there's demand for it, we'll go figure out how to make it and deliver it to customers. Every single piece of, of the business plan is in place to start. And that was very appealing to us. Right. And in terms of capitalizing the business, you know, just given where average redemption rates are now and how ready the company is, though, I mean, wh- how much does Zap's, uh, I guess, rollout and business plan change based on what the final proceeds of the deal are uh, on both, you know, high side, low side, whatever the scenario may be? The, this is a very low CapEx business. There's no capital expenditure required here to build a factory. It's all in place um, with the partnership with Summit. Um, on top of that, and Swin can get into this more, there's a, they have a tremendous relationship with a, a bank called the XM Bank of Thailand, the Export-Import Bank, who's going to finance working capital here. So all in all, the ability of this company to get to free cash flow positive earlier than, than, than many of its peers is there. We are adopting the contract manufacturing model, um, as Gavin has mentioned, and therefore there is no capex to build out factories 
build out tooling. We're working with uh, a partner which um, arrived with us via tender and uh, Summit has been in business for 70 years in its current form for 50 years. So we've de-risked that for investors. There, there isn't a, a scenario we hope where we can't make the bikes or there's no capacity or the demand is there and we can't make enough bikes. So I think that's really important. And one of the things that is really useful about um, going over to Thailand is that um, all Southeast Asian economies are, are completely driven by export. So the machine is well oiled. Summit is then supported by a state-owned enterprise called the Export Import Bank of Thailand or Exim for short. So what Exim does is it takes our purchase orders from our customers, secures them to Summit as a supplier, and it allows us then to strip out all working capital needs between a customer's order and a customer's delivery. And this is a well-oiled system and well-known in manufacturing, um, but we're possibly the only EV Nuco to have access to that kind of working capital financing and management, which um, also sets us apart from other companies. Through the supply chain, because of the export engine, Thailand is also one of the largest tier two places in the world in terms of motorcycle parts and automotive parts. For example, Ford has, I believe it's still the biggest factory outside North America in Thailand. Um, it's nearly 2 million square feet, I believe. Triumph Motorcycle, an age old British company, entirely manufactures their vehicles here. And many iconic brands, Desper, Ducati, Harley Davidson's all have factory here. And of course the big four Japanese, Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, and Kawasaki, all have major facilities in, in Thailand. And therefore, uh, our supply chain is local to the contract manufacturer. Th these are very important elements that we have access to. Great. And, and by the same token, Gavin, uh, just how did the rockiness of the market with Zap's peers weigh on your valuation of the company? And I, I know that, you know, probably a lot of other investors that are sort of just looking out at the market are going to be looking at, you know, particular metrics. But, you know, what are some of the metrics that you think are the most important when evaluating a company in this space? And, and the, uh, what are some of the things that they should really be paying attention to? Well, I think you can look at all of the pre-SOP uh, EV companies and see where they're valued. Um, and the fact that that Zap is SOP ready um, deserves a premium to those. Yet the valuation we have here is slightly higher than than kind of the median of those pre-SOP companies as we looked at it when we um, entered into the transaction. We think the asset light business model uh, deserves a premium to those. We think the SOP ready characteristic of the business deserves a premium to those and the ability to get to cash flow positive because of those and the other factors like the XM bank here. You can look at Two peers that we think are, are relevant here. One is Livewire, another two-wheeler that has despacked at the end of last year. I think today it's trading at about a $1.5 billion market cap. Uh, we have a $500 million pre-money valuation here on Zap, uh, so a significant discount to where Livewire is trading. Livewire has not started to, to produce its main product, the Del Mar, which will happen this year, and will be going into production this year as well with Zap i300. So I think when you look at that comparison, about a third of the valuation is a very attractive level for where Zap is. The other comp that we think is relevant is Fisker. And Fisker, as you know, also has a contract manufacturing relationship, which helps it get into production much quicker than everyone else. Uh, I think it's trading at about a $2.4 billion market cap uh, as of today. So again, a significant discount here for Zap versus appear that maybe in four wheels, but has some of the key elements of the business model here are similar. There's another layer to this, Gavin. Both of those companies are trading at 
in the $2 billion region and their entire captive market is the US, our market is global. We will be selling in the US, uh, not in phase one, but we'll be selling in euros in Europe, we'll be selling in the Middle East, we'll be selling in India, we'll be selling in ASEAN, Korea, Australia, Japan. So in many ways, if you want to look at it another way, it kind of also de-risks us because we're going to multi-markets and multi-currencies and contract manufacturing in a, a major low-cost hub, uh, proven major low-cost hub, um, uh, in, which happens to be in Southeast Asia. So that's a number of other attributes uh, involved there in terms of risk, scale, scalability, size of market. And so there have been some rumblings that there may be opportunities for consolidation in the EV space now that so many of these companies are listed. Does that appear to be an attractive opportunity for Zap, or are some of the other business models out there just too different? There are far fewer players on the field in two wheels than there are in four wheels. You probably know the case studies of consolidation in the four wheels much better. Um, and Geely taking over Volvo, using the Volvo team to spawn Polestar, which despacked, taking over Lotus, coming up with a premium SUV under the Lotus brand, um, producing Lincoln Co, Zeker, um, but ultimately it's all Geely. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that would be a, a very large um, case study. In motorcycles, not so much. Um, but what we have seen at the brand level rather than the EV level is many significant brands, KTM, MV Augusta, Norton, um, BSA. Uh, these are iconic European brands. Uh, they've all become Asian owned by the very large Asian motorcycle or conglomerates um, whose names are Hero, Bajaj, TVS, um, Mahindra. These are huge companies. Yet one name stands out globally, which people stateside may have not even heard of, called Royal Enfield. And Royal Enfield is an old British brand that was rejuvenated by an Indian group. Um, its market cap is now twice as big as Harley-Davidson at $11 billion. And more than half, I believe, of their sales is in India of light premium vehicles, which is right in our space. So whilst today we benchmark ourselves against Fisker and Livewire, our goal is to be the alternate British brand in Asia that will compete with Royal Enfield. So no, I don't think there's gonna be, the consolidation at the brand level in motorcycles is done. I can't see another one coming through. There are small things that have happened. Hero and Ixor that owns Stellantis, which owns uh, Chrysler and Jeep. Um, Ixor also owns Ferrari um, and Hero, which is the biggest motorcycle company in the world and Polaris, an American company you know that owns the Indian motorcycle brand, they invested $107 million in a private round for the only well-known um, pure play Nuco in EV two-wheelers in the US, a company called Zero. Um, and that private round deal was done at a valuation greater than ours. And that was a private round deal. Marlene, I think that there's a lot of white space here uh, for Zap. There's no yeah. reason for them to acquire anybody else to achieve their business objectives. Um, we've talked about the size of the market. We've talked about the transition to EV in the two-wheel space. One thing we haven't talked about is the fact that Zap has, is really creating a new category that we're calling the urban yeah. motorcycle category. Uh, when Swin and the team that developed the business plan here, they saw a huge gap uh, in, the, in really a vehicle that is, you know, a, an electric vehicle that is 
purpose-built and appropriate for the urban environment. Cars aren't really working uh, in tight and urban environments. Buses, the transition to electric has been slow. And they didn't really see a two-wheeler that was built for this. And so, I mean, Swin can talk about the design of the vehicle and why it's uh, you know purpose for the urban market. But beyond the broader market stats, we think this opportunity is huge. And there's no reason to acquire anybody else. Um, we've, been, we've got a product here that's meant for it. And in general, just looking at how things are progressing in the market with both technology and regulations, what do you see as the most exciting thing coming around the bend for the two-wheeled EV market? In Europe, the aggressive pace of legislation to um, terminate the use of um, gasoline vehicles, uh, ICE vehicles. And in Asia, a concept which the chairman of Hero Motorcycles coined urban densification. Not only is it urbanization, but the increase in density of urban uh, living happening across Asia, where mass transit has completely fallen behind. There's nowhere to park your car. And as Gavin was saying, there are no buses and subways and metros and things like that. So your number one solution is motorcycles. And within that uh, solution, there's gonna be a lot of segmentation. But if we simplify it to the standard type, call it cheap, and the premium type, call it lifestyle or value proposition, we're in that higher margin, higher value per unit sold um, lifestyle premium segment. So therefore, what I'm trying to say in Asia is increasing urban densification and also increasing purchasing power. These are these are there. We don't have to drive them. Uh, we're, we're walking into that. And if you look at uh, China as a reference, another reference, 30% um, of all two wheelers are now electric. So what's also exciting about two wheels compared to four wheels is the rotation from ICE to EV has been way faster than four wheels. So then you've got, you've got a whole bunch of layers, environmental legislation, purchasing power, urban densification, and uh, overall growth in the market, fast accepting acceptance of um, EVs proven by the rotation in, in China. Um, so all that is all tailwinds for us and globally. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, what a lot of um, our peers have done is to try and bolt an electric drivetrain to an existing form factor and an existing architecture. And that to me is, is a massive compromise. The electrification and the compactness, potential compactness of the electric drivetrain allows one to take a new look, ground up look at um, the biggest objective in two wheels, which is weight. And in doing that, what we what we did was not what I just mentioned, but to do a ground up, um, what is known as whole vehicle architecture. So to look at a motorcycle holistically and say, how can we create a new kind of motorcycle uh, that's made in a new kind of way? So as, as a consequence of that, probably the biggest thing in terms of our technology isn't electrification, but it's a new kind of chassis we call exoskeleton. An exoskeleton it, is, on the outside, XO, and it's also load bearing. And as a result of the creation of that Z shape you see on our website, what we've done is to make something we hope looks good and becomes a product-based, design-based brand DNA, but it also allowed us to slash the total number of parts, even electric to electric, 50 or 60 parts at the very least. It's also allowed us to massively reduce the weight and we, we are, probably peer-to-peer, -peer, anywhere between 30 and 80 kilos lighter 
i.e. 25 to 40% lighter. And then has also allowed us not only to go with a low component architecture, but to result in a very simplified manufacturing uh, basis. So we have no stamping, no painting. The whole thing is done not on a production line, but on a dolly system with four stations. And it only takes 30 minutes from for the parts to go in at one end and become the motorcycle at the other end. So this is a massively fast turnaround time and allows us to have very flexible manufacturing. One thing that EV growth companies only talk about, right, is growing. But what happens, you're at a run rate of 30,000 units a month and you, you need to, to step back slightly. If we look in the news, you'll see that Tesla has to dot prices because they can't slow down production. They never thought they'd be in that situation in China. We won't have that problem. So the whole thing's tied together in our business model, which links the architecture of the vehicle with the how they're made. And then of course, lower components, better components means you've also got better sustainability. So yeah, that, that's a very important part of what we set out to do. So it isn't just about giving customers a nice product, but it allows them to, in their diligence process, if you like, to say, well, okay, I love the look of this bike, but um, you know, how are they as, as a company? Do they share my values about sustainability um, and things like that, which I think in the age of social media um, becomes very important because people can look and find these things about you. And we knowingly advocate these things and promote that we are the forefront of these things, significantly ahead of all the legacy companies and all the other pure play EV2 wheel codes.